Our reading for today is the second letter of John. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many to see For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Uh, Welcome to our service today. And before uh, I begin, I need to make uh, a correction. I misspoke last Sunday when I said that I was so thankful to be able to sing praises with my entire family during the Easter dawn service. Uh, Right after the service, my son Peter called and pointed out that he wasn't home. Rip. So my apologies to him. I should have said that I was thankful to sing with most of my family at home. Also, some other members of my family pointed out that my meme game last Sunday was less than stellar, that it leaned toward corny and cheesy. So to all the young people, I'm sorry, but corny and cheesy is kind of my style, Um, but I will try to restrain myself uh, in the future. Uh, With that, let me welcome those of you who are new to our service. I want you to know that I've been preaching through the letters of John. And before Easter, I finished the series on the first letter of John. And today, I will be preaching on the second letter of John. If you did not hear any of the sermons on 1 John, that's okay because 2 John is kind of like a Cliff Notes or a Spark Notes version of 1 John. So you'll get a good sense of both letters uh, today. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, uh, be with us now in the hearing of your word, and in the hearing of your word, give us the confidence of knowing you, that you are with us, and give us the power in your spirit to obey. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I imagine that for most of you, if not all of you, 
You have never heard a sermon on the second letter of John until today. It is not a popular letter. Martin Luther and John Calvin, for example, wrote extensively and both wrote commentaries and lectured on 1 John, but not on 2 John. I think this letter suffers from second child syndrome. In general, the second letter, much like the second child, gets less attention. 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter get far more attention than their second counterparts. The one exception might be 2 Timothy, but that's because it's the last letter that Paul wrote, and so it gets the extra attention that the last child might get. As far as I know, this is the first time and likely the last time I will be preaching on this letter. But even though it's my first and possibly only time, I want to tell you that this letter has a very special place in my heart, and today is a special blessing for me to share this word with you. Let me explain. I came to this country back in 1972 when I was eight years old. And when we got to this country, my family immediately joined a Korean church in Buffalo. During those first several years, the children's ministry was led by a retired elderly couple named Mr. and Mrs. Shilke. I'm not sure how or why they ended up in the Korean church. Uh, they didn't speak any Korean, but they were the first people who told me about Jesus in English. Mrs. Shilke would play the piano and lead us in praise, and her husband, Mr. Shilke, would teach our Sunday school class. Of those many years of Sunday school, I can distinctly remember only three lessons that he taught us. One involved fig newtons, which I will have to tell you about at some other time. Another was about a prophecy about the end times about which he was very much mistaken. And the third lesson that has stuck with me all these years is from this letter of 2 John. I'm actually quite amazed that he taught a lesson on this obscure letter and even more amazed that I actually remembered it. It actually makes me a little bit nervous to think about what random lessons some of you might remember four decades from now. He told us, based on verses 10 and 11, that we should not even say hello to anyone who comes to our house with a false gospel. He warned us especially not to let in Jehovah's Witnesses who went door to door to evangelize. So for many years, I kept to that warning. And it wasn't just the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think it also made me wary of any Christian who wasn't Presbyterian. Now, this past Tuesday, I shared with the session and staff about how I've been debating with myself about whether or not I should stick to my original plans and preach through the letters of John, or given our current circumstances, whether I should preach a more um, topical sermon, perhaps something about how to deal with anxiety or fear or maybe preach on one of the lament psalms. I got some helpful but mixed feedback, and so I wasn't entirely comfortable about preaching on today's text. Well, on Wednesday, I got a letter that seemed to be a reassurance from God. Here's the letter. It's from a uh, Miss Geneva Lane. 
The envelope looks like a handwritten personal letter, but I have no idea who this is. The letter sounds, as I read it, like a friendly Christian letter. She wants to let me know that in these anxious times, the Bible has a word of comfort. She quotes in bold from Jeremiah 29, 11, for I well know the thoughts that I am thinking toward you, declares Jehovah, thoughts of peace and not of calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now, as soon as I see the word Jehovah in that verse, I know that this is from the Jehovah's Witnesses. I also know that this translation is one which every reputable scholar has said is terrible because the people who translated it knew Greek and Hebrew about as well as I know Korean. That is to say, they didn't. Imagine if I were to translate the Bible into Korean. That's basically what they have. For comparison, you can see in the ESV, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So when Miss Lane offers then an explanation of the verse and she writes, notice God's feelings towards us as individuals. I want to write back to her and say, no, that's not what the Bible says. First of all, don't even get me started on the misuse of the name Jehovah. Secondly, I want to point out to her that the you in the Hebrew is plural. It's you all. And it's addressed to the people of Israel in exile, not towards us as individuals. And thirdly, it's not about God's feelings toward me at all. It's about God's redemptive plans. Now, I don't want to get too uh, critical here. Many people, of course, have used this verse to comfort others. It is a comforting verse. I'm sure I've used it on a number of occasions myself. And I don't mean to single out Miss Geneva, Lane, or even the Jehovah's Witnesses. But suppose I didn't know any better and think that this letter is from a Christian and I go to their website as she suggests. I might find that a lot of stuff that they believe sound very similar to what we believe. They say that they believe in God, the creator. They say that they believe in the Bible. So I might think, well, they're okay, and even join them and support their ministry. But then I read this among their list of beliefs. We follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor him as our savior and as the son of God. Thus, we are Christians. However, we have learned from the Bible that Jesus is not almighty God and that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. They say, thus, we are Christians. No, they're not. They have deliberately mistranslated the Bible. They deny the full divinity of Christ and the triune God. They are not Christians in any historically meaningful way. This is precisely what Mr. Schilke and John, the elder, are warning us about. You know, over the years, a number of Jehovah's Witnesses have come to my house. I know they're demographically targeting me because the people that come to our house are either Chinese or Korean. And uh, unfortunately, none of them speak English, and so I can't even have a conversation with them. But in the past, they have not sent me letters. It's the quarantine that we're going through right now that has forced them to send letters rather than doing a face-to-face -face visit. 
And isn't that, I, I just found that so amazing. Because of the quarantine, I get a letter from Geneva Lane reminding me of the lesson that I learned from Mr. Schilke 45 years ago on a verse in 2 John warning me about her during the one week in my life that I'm actually considering preaching on this very verse. You know, I, I was so encouraged by that because it felt like God was giving me a chronologically distant fist bump. Not only that, on Thursday, I got a second letter from a Mr. Arthur Little. And I think here they made a mistake because it's the exact same letter. Any thought that I had she wrote me a personal letter was completely dashed. And frankly, I was a little bit disappointed with Mr. Little because at least Miss Lane made the effort to personalize it by putting my name at the beginning of her letter, but he just addressed it to dear neighbor. In any case, I'm really thankful for these form letters because to me, they're a confirmation from God. So what's the word that this letter the second letter of John might have for us today. As this is a very short letter, I want to walk you through the entire letter today. Second John, unlike first John, looks like a typical letter. It has the person who tells you who's writing it, who is to, a greeting, the body of the letter, and then a closing. It's written by someone who calls himself the elder. We're not sure who this elder is, but tradition says that it's John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who in his later years, we know, became an overseer over a cluster of churches around Ephesus. What is certain is that those receiving this letter know who this is just by the title, the elder. The title alone carries enough authority. It's the elder, not a elder. He's one who's acknowledged as the leader, and we know that this then is therefore trustworthy. He addresses the letter to the elect lady and her children. It's possible that this is a personal letter to an unnamed woman. But the word lady is Korea, the feminine form of kurios, which means lord or master. So it means lady in the sense of lords and ladies, not just, you know, a woman. In Latin, this would be domina, and in Aramaic, the equivalent name would be Martha, so if it is a personal letter to this particular woman, then it's being addressed to someone who's quite significant and influential. But both tradition and modern scholarship favors the idea that this elect lady and her children refer symbolically to the church and the members of the church. The Bible personifies Israel as a woman and Jerusalem as the mother of Israel. The Apostle Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And we've also seen repeatedly in 1 John that the congregation is referred to as children. Also, in verse 13 of this letter, the elder writes, The children of your elect sister greet you, which sounds a lot like a sister church sending their greetings to their uh, sister church. So it's the letter for the church. It's for all of us. Then comes the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. This is a little bit different from the usual greetings that the other writers of the New Testament have. The Apostle Paul, for example, usually writes, grace to you and peace. The Apostle Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And similarly, Jude says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Rather than wishing grace and peace and mercy, the elder says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It will be with us. He's echoing the reassurances that he gave in 1 John. He doesn't say, I hope you're well. I hope you can have these things. Rather, he says, I'm confident that grace and mercy and peace are with us. He's not wishing for or even praying for these things for his friends. He is reassuring them that they have these things and that they will continue to receive them. Then after the greeting, in the main body of the letter, the elder has a word of encouragement and a warning. First, he's encouraged that at least some in the church are walking in the truth and calls them to keep on walking in the one commandment of God, that we love one another. Again, we saw these same words in 1 John. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old one. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. He's just repeating what we found in the first letter. And then secondly, the warning too, is the same as in 1 John. He calls us to watch out for those who have left the community, those who have denied that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he uses strong language once again, calling all who make such denials the deceiver and the antichrist. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. Today, I think the problem that people have is about the full divinity of Jesus Christ, that he was fully divine. But the primary problem that John's community had was that they denied the full humanity of Jesus Christ, that he was truly and fully human. Culturally, at least among the Greeks, the belief was that the flesh is weak and that only the mind or the spirit really mattered. The ideal of transcendence was to escape from the bondage of the flesh. They didn't have a they didn't have a problem believing in a God. It was the idea that God would voluntarily take on flesh that they found so ridiculous. It's the opposite of what they were trying to achieve. And so some began to argue that, well, Jesus wasn't really human. He only seemed that way, or he was only temporarily human. It was a way to try to compromise with the Greek philosophers to make Christianity more appetizing. And John says, no, no, absolutely not. That Jesus came in the flesh is a cornerstone of what it is to believe in the truth. And so those who do not keep to this teaching are deceivers and antichrists. That is, they are unchristian or non-Christians. I found the word deceiver quite interesting. In Greek, it's planos, from which we get in the English the word planets. They're called planets because in the ancients noticed that some stars seemed to wander in the sky. Instead of staying relatively put, like stars are supposed to do, some of these stars or planets moved around. Thus, the stars, they were deceivers. They were false because they were wandering around. Similarly, John says, those who have gone out no longer walk in love, they do not walk according to the commandments. They have wandered off the path of truth. John says furthermore in verse nine that they have gone on ahead. They have rushed along. 
They have wandered away from, they've gone too far beyond, strayed, and are without Christ. They are not abiding in Christ, and therefore they do not have the Father, they do not have the Son, and they do not have the life. This is not to say that we should not grow or to progress, but simply that it must be in the context always of abiding in Christ. As Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, stay in my word, then you are truly my disciples. John finishes up his warning then by saying that if anyone comes to you without this truth about Christ, you must not extend any hospitality or even a greeting. This was the warning that Mr. Schilke gave me those many decades ago. It may sound rather harsh to our modern ears, but there was a good reason for it back then. Hospitality was a much bigger issue than, than it is now. To receive hospitality was to turn your status from an outsider and stranger to an insider, to one of membership within the community. To welcome someone established a relationship that not only accepted the person, but implicitly what they represented. The reality was that traveling missionaries depended on such hospitality to survive and to succeed. When Jesus sent out his disciples on mission in Luke 9 and 10, for example, he told his disciples to rely on such hospitality. They were to carry no extra provisions, but they were to rely entirely on the goodwill of those whom they visited. John says, by receiving such deceivers into your home or into the church, you are welcoming their teaching and you are making the spread of false teaching possible. By forbidding hospitality, John is trying to limit the spread of this false teaching about Jesus Christ. John is not suggesting that we be unfriendly, nor to exclude contact with anyone who disagrees with us. He's not saying, don't go out to lunch with your non-Christian friends when we are allowed to go out to lunch once again. He's concerned about protecting the church from false teaching, and he wants to make sure that the church does not support the work of those who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In our context, rather than hospitality, it would be something like sending money to support Mormon missionaries or inviting a preacher to come and speak um, at our church. And the letter closes with the same desire I think we all have. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Long before Zoom, this is what people did. They wrote letters and they waited until they could see each other again because they knew that face to face, that that is what was going to complete their joy. I believe the singular message, the singular message of this letter for us is the inseparability of truth and love. The unity of what we know, or rather who we know, and how we behave. The encouragement to love one another and the warning against false teachers are two sides of the one commandment. It's what we saw already in 1 John 3. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. The one commandment, the one commandment is to believe the truth about Jesus and to love one another. I know that our current ethos of toleration dismisses any sort of exclusive truth claims. 
especially religious ones. Many insist that religious beliefs are nothing more than subjective feelings and in a separate category from truth or fact. The world wants to have love and kindness without any admission of possible truth claims. This is the kind of sentiment that is popularized by songs like John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine, there is no religion and all the people living in peace. I suppose it doesn't really matter whether our first responders, for example, are Christians, Buddhists, or atheists. They all deserve, they all deserve our thanks and support for their work. But in regard to the ultimate truth, in regard to the church, in regard to Christian fellowship, it absolutely does matter. In the first six verses, you'll see that the word truth appears five times and the word love four times. Truth and love are not just the themes of this letter, but they are inextricably tied together. As a Christian, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot say, that you believe in Jesus Christ and not love others. You cannot love others and compromise on the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. I know that we tend to think of truth only as doctrinal, intellectual, or factual, but Christian truth is fundamentally relational. It is fellowship with the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is John's shorthand for the belief that Jesus Christ, the only unique Son of God, has come in the flesh to die for our sins, and in Him, and in Him only, we have life. There is no life, no eternal life, conceivable outside of this life in Jesus Christ. And we also tend to think of love as an emotion and unrelated to truth. But for John, the two are inseparable. First John 3, he writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love is not mere feeling. Love is an event. It is a truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that, he loved, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For Christians, there is no love outside of this love of God in Jesus Christ. The love that is rooted in the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. For Christians, there is no truth outside of this revelation in Jesus Christ. This combination of truth and love may not change the circumstances of your life right now, but it can change how you approach life. You can know the truth and this truth will set you free. You can know that you have life and life eternal. You can know the truth of the love of God in Jesus Christ. You can know that nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Jesus. And in that knowing, you can continue to keep the faith, continue to love one another now as always. There's no need to pause in your faith. The truth of God, the love of God, the command of God has not changed. Despite our circumstances, there's no reason to stop praying or to stop reading the scriptures. There's no reason not to visit one another and talk to each other from six feet away. There's no reason not to write real and personal letters of encouragement. 
you know, I was so encouraged this week to hear that some people started to make masks to donate to our local hospital and others have asked about how to support local food banks and missionaries during this time. We can continue to walk in the truth and love and in so doing complete, make full our mutual joy. What God has done in Jesus Christ is a truth of God's love. And this is the good news. Truth and love are inseparable. In fact, they're basically the same thing in John's mind. And this is what gives us confidence in this life and in the life to come. Our faith does not rest in some vague feelings of love or in some blurry notions of truth. It rests in the knowledge of the truth and love made concrete in Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. This is what gives us hope. And this is the truth that motivates us to live and to love. Believe the good news and be at peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth which makes love possible. Would you protect us from every false gospel that denies Jesus and would take our joy away? In this season, as in every season, help us to trust your word and live in the humble confidence of what you have done for us. I ask that you would comfort all who are discouraged with fear and anxiety regarding their health, their employment, that you would strengthen all who must expose themselves to potential contagion because of their work, that you would reassure all who are struggling with faith during this time. Let your truth, the completed work of Jesus on the cross, take deep root in our hearts and minds, and let that truth be the seed which flowers into love for others. We now pray the prayer Jesus taught us together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.